वेलकम टू द हेल्थ टिप्स पॉडकास्ट The Health Tips podcast is all about health and fitness but beyond that it's about fitting in fitness you probably know everything there is to know about being healthy eat right sleep right exercise keep your weight in the range and stay off depression and good to hear all that but then one travels and one is served all that fried food late night meetings and all and that voice in the head that goes i'm surely going to stay start my fitness regime tomorrow Uh, it's a struggle for all of us so that's uh, what my focus was when i met eddie stern uh, he's a global yoga guru his students include madonna and gwyneth paltrow and what we spoke did make an impact on my life so i'd love to have you hear it too so hi eddie and welcome to the show this is the health tips podcast and uh, done by atharva markom and so uh, tell me about you know about about yourself how did some uh, some party goer and 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 kind of a media person uh, go into the saintly life of yoga and and how did this transformation occur okay super well thanks for having me on first of all uh, i can't say that i've exactly gone into the saintly life but i've definitely gone into the life of yoga um You know, I come from New York City. I grew up in Greenwich Village in downtown New York, and um, you know, I came from a, a family which is a perfectly good, supportive, healthy, happy family. Um, but from the time I was young, I was a little bit uh, questioning my life and searching for meaning somehow, and I wasn't finding that meaning in the regular school. Um, And so I wasn't finding really what I was looking for in in school. I didn't like high school or anything like that. Uh, I w- was not even particularly fond of education. So I drifted towards music, and I started playing music in punk rock bands. And I drifted towards art, and I thought maybe I would become an artist, and that would be my expression in my life. And all of the art and all of the music kind of led me to. Um, the nightclubs and to playing in clubs and to everything that's associated with that so it was not a very healthy lifestyle um and so in that you know searching for creative expression uh i kept looking in different directions and eventually i met somebody who was doing yoga and they started telling me about the benefits of yoga and the benefits of a vegetarian diet and i was really intrigued by that because i wanted to improve my life so i became a vegetarian I didn't start yoga right away, but first I became a vegetarian, and pretty quickly I started seeing really profound changes in how I felt health-wise. Um, I stopped eating all meat, chicken, and fish. Um, I was eating and cooking for myself, all macrobiotic diet mainly, a lot of rice and vegetables and tofu, and everything started to change. I started to go to bed earlier and wake up earlier. Um, I started to do some meditation around this time. I was about 19 years old or so. Wow! And um, then um, I found a yoga class in New York, and I went. To Did you lose all your friends? I uh, yes, I pretty much um, started losing my friends quickly. Uh, and um, and then you know when I um, started doing yoga, then I started gaining new friends, and I had a whole sort of new circle of yoga friends. There were not a lot of people doing yoga back then. This was. 1987, 1988, New York City. So there were about four yoga schools, and not a lot of people doing it. So, um, so that was that. As soon as I started doing yoga, very quickly I, I was hooked. 
And by the time I was 20, I felt like this is what I want to do with my life. So I went to India, to Kerala, and took a Shivananda teacher training. And when I came back to New York... At 20? Yeah, I had just turned 21 when I left for India. And then I came back to New York a few months And later. what did your parents think when you said you want to go to India and, and do yoga? Yeah, they were quite concerned um, <laughs> because they uh, didn't know anything about where I was going. Yoga was not popular. They didn't know if I was joining a cult or something or if I was becoming a Hare Krishna maybe. They really had no idea at all. So, um, so that was that. And uh, it, back then, it was considered that if you didn't go to university and get a degree, you had no options in your life for getting a job. So they were very concerned that I wasn't going to university, um, but was, you know, going this artist route. So, um, but I, I came back and they could see that I was healthy and I was happy and I loved what I was doing. And then, So what was the India experience? How, the, what, what, you, you came to India and, and what was that experience? Well, the experience was fabulous. Um, remember, I'm from New York City and I grew up in Greenwich Village and New York is also pretty crowded and it's definitely chaotic. New York in the 1970s and 1980s was not a clean and safe place. New York was bankrupt for some time in the 1970s and crime was spiraling out of control and, uh, you know, the area where I lived was run by the mafia. So, you know, it was not an idyllic kind of, um, you know, very touristic place like it is now. But considering it was 1986, you, you, there was no internet to figure out the ashram. How, how would you even know that this ashram existed? Well, I mean, before the internet, we still had ways of finding out information. So, um, you know, you would meet people, uh, you would just go to, you would go to a yoga school, a Shivananda yoga school, they would give you information about the courses, or my teachers who I was practicing with in New York had come to Shivananda. So word of mouth was how you found out about things. Uh, but when I got to India, I was used to chaos a little bit already. And so I wasn't, I didn't have culture shock. It was actually, people were very warm and very welcoming. And I never had encountered such hospitality anywhere um, as I had in India. So uh, immediately we felt, you know, welcomed all, all the Westerners who came here. We felt the same way. Uh, we went to Shivananda and spent a month there doing the yoga teacher training. And then I traveled from Kerala all the way up to Kathmandu wow. by bus and by train and then from Kathmandu back down by bus uh, to Delhi and then to Rajasthan and then went home from there. So um, I was traveling with a friend of mine and basically we were going to holy places and temples all through the country for every stop and that was the itinerary that we had planned. In, in all those holy places we would spend a few days, we would do yoga and meditate and do our sadhana there. And that's where the yoga lifestyle really came alive for me in those holy places of India. So um, that was basically how it started and it never stopped since then over the past 30 so how, years. So how has, uh, what is the yoga lifestyle? Well, the yoga lifestyle is outlined in the yoga texts like Yoga Sutra by Patanjali. Uh, and it says that there's some basic things that you should be following in yoga. The first thing are the principles of um, Yama which is Ahimsa, Asteya, Satya, Brahmacharya, Aparigraha. Um, it's actually Ahimsa, Satya, Asteya, Brahmacharya, Aparigraha. And these are some basic guidelines for living, how we have our interpersonal interactions with people. Uh, we should be kind, we should be honest, we shouldn't steal things, we shouldn't sexually objectify people, and we should not be greedy for the things that we don't have. So these are the basic, basic principles for interactions. 
And then there's niyama, which are personal things that we should follow. And these include cleanliness and um, contentment, some type of daily discipline that we do, swadhyaya, which is either chanting or self-evaluation, studying to see um, how closely we're following along with the things that we say we're committed to. And then last is Ishwara Pranidhana, or surrender to God if you're theistic. And if you're a non-theistic person, you can still practice surrender through surrender to the unknown, or feeling that every action I do, I don't know the outcome of that action, but I'll still do it as fully as I can. So this is the foundation of spiritual life. And then the asanas and pranayama and meditation uh, may basically make your body strong and healthy and make your nervous system balanced so that you can focus inwardly and also so that you can behave properly outwardly. So <clears throat> there must be some interesting memorable instances of of your life with yoga. So uh, you know in, in things which happened to you, people you met, uh, you know where yoga was a key part of the whole uh, you know the, the reason that it happened. Um, are there any kind of memories of, of your of, of yoga that you really that really come to your mind two or three memories uh, uh, in your entire yoga career um, you mean in terms of like um, people you met or you know you know circumstances okay. or interesting incidents which which you'd like to tell your grandchildren oh well <laughs> I mean um, I guess uh, I, I have tons of, of memories of yoga um, and um, let's see uh, uh, hmm. well I mean in regards to people uh, this is something that, that I get asked quite a bit because at our yoga school in New York we've had a lot of celebrities coming through uh, I don't know how they found our way to us uh, but it's always kind of fun when they do I'd have to say uh, I had been teaching for about 10 years already before Madonna walked into our yoga school for the first time. Uh, a lot of the young kids now don't even know who Madonna is, but for people of our generation, she was an important figure as a, as a pop star. And I remember that after uh, I told my dad that Madonna had come to class, was the first time he thought, okay, maybe this <laughs> yoga thing is going to be okay and yeah. I don't have to worry about him so much. You know, At the time, my dad was a stockbroker. Uh, and so he was, of course, really concerned about this whole yoga thing. But as soon as did he think you've gone nutty? Uh, he didn't think I'd gone nutty, but a stockbroker's kid uh, he, he, chanting Om. You know, I don't think he thought that I had gone nutty, but I, I think that he was um, he was concerned that it was going to be a sustainable, income-producing lifestyle. Uh, but after Madonna walked into class, he thought, okay, this is probably going to maybe work out. Around those years, yoga started shifting and becoming a lot more popular in America. Up until that time, it was a very fringe sort of thing. It was still for the hippies. Uh, but around 1998, 99, 2000, when some of the celebrities started doing it, when it was getting more popular, then it really became more imbibed into the, you know, the popular culture. Um, and so after she came, then other celebrities started coming as well. And, um, you know, people wonder what was it like having people like that in class and the answer is that those people got where they are because they're very, very disciplined and they're focused. Uh, you don't become successful as a musician or an artist without being super dedicated to your discipline, uh, to the art that you're creating. So when they're in the classroom, they're focused on their yoga practice. That's, they're there to do yoga, they're there to work, they're not there to be adored and loved by people. 
So they're the same as everybody else, and you have to treat them the same as everyone else. So what, what is the key to having good discipline? How do you have good discipline? Uh, well, if you're a person who is not disciplined, the key is attainable goals. You, chew, you pick off small little chunks of things that you think you can do, and then you do them little by little. So if you're a person who really struggles to exercise, don't think about exercising for an hour every day or an hour three times a week. Do something for five minutes a day and say, I'm going to do from Monday through Friday. I'm going to do five minutes a day in the morning before I get ready for work. And if you can manage to do five minutes a day for about five weeks in a row, you will wire a new habit into your system. So uh, as you know in, in your work with science, that neuroplasticity is an important part about how we learn and how we grow and how we wire new things into, into our brains, basically. Uh, so through repetitive habits, we will wire new habits into our brain and those will become ours that we can keep forever. So the trick is to pick something small that we can do every day so we can do it for at least a five to six week period. And then once we get there, we're going to wake up in the morning, it's going to be wired into our brain and we're going to go, I'm ready to do my exercise or my yoga or my meditation or my prayer or whatever it might be for those five minutes. And then from there, if you need to, you can increase. You can go, okay, I'm going to do seven minutes. Or every other day, I'm going to do 15 minutes. And then you make that your habit as well. So discipline is really choosing something that you can attain, sticking to it, wiring that habit into your brain, into your nervous system, and then it becomes part of you. And then that's who you are. And then when you want to improve yourself a little more, you choose something else that challenges you. Not too big of a challenge, just something attainable. And then you do that thing, and then you become that thing as well. So repetition is key for a new habit. Uh, it could be a simple thing also, an example I like to give quite often, because I've done this myself, is if you're someone who loses their keys all the time. You know, you come into your house, you put your keys wherever, and then you can't find them, and then it takes you 15 minutes a day to look for your keys, and you get frustrated, and it's a big pain for everybody, including your wife or your husband, and you say, can you find my keys? And they get frustrated. So you keep a bowl next to your door, and every day when you come in, the first thing you do is you put your keys in the bowl. And after about five weeks of doing that, that will be your habit. You have this mechanical, physical thing of putting the keys in the bowl, which is lining up with a desire that you've created in your mind. Those two things become connected. That wires into your brain in a, through neuroplasticity. And then every time you walk in the door, your keys will automatically go in the bowl. You'll always be able to find them, you'll save time every day, and you won't annoy everyone because you can't find your keys. So from that one simple habit of changing something, you can then begin to add habits onto it that you want to change. You can do physical things, you can do emotional things, you can do mental things, you can do social things like maybe I want to become a better listener and stop interrupting people. And so, because, you know, that's something that a lot of people struggle with. That they, you know, they don't really fully listen to people. So you develop the habit of waiting until someone has finished their sentence, and then you speak. And then after a few weeks, all of a sudden, you become a better listener. So what is your daily routine, you know, as, because you must be having a very structured routine, which which a lot of people probably aspire to. What's an, what's an ideal routine or an Eddie Stern's routine that people should aspire to? Like from the time you wake up in the morning till the time you uh, sleep, because uh, life is a bit complicated. It's not about just getting up and 
having everything peaceful and you know and um, and now you as well you run a uh, a business a business is like any other business which involves travel which involves accounts which involves lawyers which in, which involves uh, you know marketing so how do you manage to have a structured day okay well i don't with know with yoga i don't know if my routine is something that people would want to aspire to um i get up around 3 or 3:15 every morning wow and that's when my day gets started uh, i have a shower i brush my teeth i make a cup of tea and i spend the first bits of the morning while i'm having tea usually reading some spiritual books or any thing that i'm studying at the time and then by 3:45 or 4 a.m. i begin my yoga practice and i make sure i do at least 1 hour practice every day uh if i have more time because i'm not traveling or i'm not teaching then i'll do a little bit more and then i spend about 20 minutes or so doing pranayama and then i spend 20 minutes to half an hour in meditation and repetition of mantra so basically you know a minimum of an hour and a half to 2 hours a day of my personal sadhana and then when i'm teaching the classes usually begin at 6am so i have to make sure that i get everything done by 6am um so i can begin teaching uh my teachings is usually from 6 in the morning until around 10 or 11 in the morning and then after that i have my first meal I rest for a while and then the rest of the day is for all the other types of work that I have to do. So till 10 o'clock you don't eat anything from 3 a.m. to 10 o'clock? Uh sometimes I have like a a small energy bar and um that's generally what I have when I'm done with practice I'll have an energy bar and another cup of tea. But is that the right uh, I mean should one uh not have food for such a lengthy period of time or it, would you suggest that for for everyone um yeah it's difficult to suggest anything for everyone because everybody is different and has different needs um right now it's considered that it's intermittent fasting is sort of a healthy thing to do so if you can avoid eating food for say a 12 hour stretch or even a 16 hour stretch that's quite good for you on multiple levels there's a lot of research behind the intermittent fasting right now Uh, the yogis would have called this caloric restriction or the restriction of food so that you only eat within certain time periods a day because if you're eating too much food uh, you have a harder time digesting it and the things that you don't digest become toxic in your system and that leads to inflammatory conditions um inflammation is responsible for about 95% of preventable diseases that we have in our society today so inflammation is connected to cancer it's connected to heart disease it's connected to diabetes it's connected to digestive disorders and it's also connected to anxiety and depression uh it's also now been shown to be connected to alzheimer's as well so inflammation is one of the triggers which causes these diseases to um become fully penetrant to so themselves so what is inflammation and what, what is the yoga uh, how does yoga help in uh you know stopping it or or reversing it okay. and what should be the low yoga lifestyle because uh, probably even thyroid and you know some of these diseases also are triggered by inflammation yeah and uh, rheumatoid arthritis and um some types of epilepsy as well so what is the yoga lifestyle to help avoid eradicate and reverse and have you had any uh, experiences of people coming to your 
you know, studio or your exercisers who have seen very strong changes in their health conditions after yoga? Okay. Uh, yes. So what happens with inflammation is inflammation is triggered by the sympathetic nervous system. And so we have two branches of our autonomic nervous system, the sympathetic and parasympathetic. The sympathetic moves us towards activity, parasympathetic moves us towards rest. Sympathetic nervous system also perceives threat in the environment. Environment could be our body. It could be um, bacteria or viruses. It could be when our body mistakes something that is in us for something which is dangerous, like a cell that um, it needs to fight off even though the cell might not be harmful. So one of the ways that the body is going to deal with um, bacteria or a virus or perceiving threat, maybe it could be we have a cut or we sprain an ankle or we have some type of injury, is it's going to release adrenaline and cortisol, which are going to go to that area. Um, it's going to release uh, anti-inflammatory biomarkers to go to that area and start fixing the area or fighting off the disease. So this is this is called a acute inflammation response where we there's a problem say a cut and then the body is going to send the white blood cells and cortisol to that area to begin to repair it uh, cortisol is inflammatory on its own it's not bad for us it can help protect us the problem becomes when our body senses something which is a threat and it isn't a threat and it still continues to release the inflammatory cortisol so for example, if we're getting stressed out repeatedly through the day, or we're continually causing a lot of injury to the body or harm to the body, or we're eating foods that the body doesn't recognize or can't digest, um, we'll start to create this condition where the sympathetic nervous system is responding by releasing these stress hormones into the bloodstream, and they can't get themselves out from the bloodstream quick enough. So normally, cortisol is gonna be absorbed back into the red blood cells, or we're going to release it through urine and sweat. And, but we need time for that to happen because cortisol is slow acting and takes a while to leave the system. But if we are triggering the adrenals to release it repeatedly throughout the day, our body can't get rid of it quick enough. And so then it gets stuck in our bloodstream. It goes to the brain and attaches to the receptors in the prefrontal cortex and to many other areas. And we kind of start to create a toxic condition of inflammation in the body. So one of the ways that the body deals with monitoring and controlling levels of inflammation is through the vagus nerve. And when there's too much inflammation in the body, the vagus nerve temporarily gets impaired and it can't control these levels. And it also begins to um, disrupt heart rate variability and other physiological processes. So the way that yoga becomes very helpful is that there are four basic things which will help to restore vagal tone. So if the tone is low, that means messages aren't getting sent back and forth from the body to the brain. If the vagal tone is high, then the messages are being sent and the vagus nerve can control inflammation. It can control the messages that are going to all the visceral organs and also receive the information coming from the organs up to the brain. So what are those four things that really work well? Number one are postures because they're doing postures even like sitting up straight when you're meditating. You're sending messages to the baroreceptors at the carotid arteries to monitor and balance blood pressure. Okay, this is a very important part of cardiovascular health. The next thing will be breathing. Through slow rhythmic breathing as the belly comes in and out, 
we're sending messages through the vagal afferents in the abdominal region up to the brain of rhythmicity, of calm, of safety, of contentment. So when there's stress or anxiety or a lot of, or, or any hints of disease, our breathing patterns get interrupted. So if we restore a smooth, calm, intentional breathing pattern, that will send those messages up to the brain as well. And then the next thing is going to be vocalization. Pranayamas like Brahmari Pranayama, where we make the humming sound, uh, like the, bee, the, the, the sound of a bee, or the Ujjayi Pranayama, where we make the hissing sound in the throat. This will stimulate the vagal nerves in the throat, uh, again, toning the information flows that are passing there. And as well, chanting or singing is very good for vagal tone too. And then the last is behavior. Um, feelings of kindness, appreciation, and gratitude will strengthen vagal tone and heart rate variability, and anger and anxiety will interrupt the um, heart rate variability and also weaken vagal tone. So these four practices are the first four limbs of Ashtanga Yoga. You find behavior in Yama and Niyama. You find chanting in Niyama. You find postures are asanas and breathing is pranayama. So the first four limbs of Ashtanga Yoga basically seem like they were designed in part to balance the vagal tone and strengthen vagal tone. So we have smooth communication flows between the body and the brain. Um, and as well, when the vagus nerve is toned, we see a reduction of diseases, including cancers, certain types of cancers, certain types of diabetes, digestive problems reduce, anxiety can reduce, and, um, and that's that. So um, there is some research behind this that you can find on PubMed and other places. And there is, you know, a continual amount of research that is being included. But the vagus nerve is very much a hot topic right now, and has been for the last several years because of how closely it's linked to inflammation, and how inflammation is linked to 95% of preventable diseases that we have in the world today, preventable and non-communicative. So, is that the reason why we are seeing such a high incidence of? non-communicable diseases or NCDs as we call it in, in pharmaceuticals, uh, you know, especially uh, India surprisingly uh, is the home of yoga mm -hmm. and we are also the capital of diabetes in the world. 50% of the world's diabetes patients are in India. Uh, we are also going to be the cancer capital of the world. I, I don't know if you're aware of that. Uh, we are also the cardiovascular capital of the world, cardiovascular disease capital of the world. So do you see, uh, you have seen India for a long time, do you think that, what is the problem of, is it our lifestyle or is, have you seen a change in, because you've been coming since 1986, so do you see a change in the, uh, do you see any, any signs of change in the food or the lifestyle or, you know, what is the reason that we are in this? disaster? Well, um, I don't think I can give a reason for why there's such high rates of cardiovascular diabetes and cancer in India. Um, definitely all of these diseases are linked to food. The types of food we eat are going to affect the microbiome and the microbiome is very much responsible for different types of health in the body including cardiovascular health, um, digestive disorders and moods and emotions. So eating too much sugar, 
eating a lot of oily foods, eating fried foods, um, eating foods that you know don't have the proper amount of nutrients in them are all going to contribute to inflammatory levels of the body. Too much sugar, definitely not good for you. Fried food, definitely not good for you. Uh, to eat more fresh vegetables and more fruits, it's very good for you. So in India, you also have the ancient system of Ayurveda, which has many guidelines for food and lifestyle. That's probably a good place to start looking in terms of what type of food should people be eating that is suitable for them that will help support their health. Uh, I've also followed an Ayurvedic diet at different times in my life and it's always been really beneficial yes. for me. Can you tell us a little bit about that diet? Uh, well, for me, because I, you know, there's the Vata Pitta Kapha Dosha and Dosha means a defect. So this is how you tend to go out of balance. I tend to go out of balance with Pitta, which is fire. Um, I have, you know, I have a reddish complexion. I had red hair when I had hair. Uh, I'm a little bit fiery and active by nature. I have a lot of energy. Uh, my body is uh, the right characteristic for Pitta, etc. So the foods that I should avoid are a lot of foods that are hot, fiery, uh, red and orange in that spectrum. And I should eat more cooling foods that are more in the white, green, purple, um, blue, brown sort of region and less tomatoes, you know, less chili, um, less yellow foods as well. Uh, as well as particular types of tea, like peppermint tea, for example, is quite good for me, while ginger tea, which is heating, isn't going to be so good for me. So uh, you follow the, you learn these guidelines, you have someone who can help you, you have a lot of Ayurvedic physicians here. Do you recommend any particular, apart from the book that you have, uh, that you have written, uh, which is uh, One Simple Thing, uh, which is a book that you're releasing uh, in India, mm -hmm. uh, which I have bought and I have entirely enjoyed because uh, it's a very interesting book on 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 yoga uh, because it, it it interestingly doesn't probably have a single picture of a posture of of, of yoga posture though it's a yoga book and it's all about uh, healing your mind body and soul and you have gone through the the entire um, the, the more in depth and structured uh, I don't even know how to describe it but. But the more in-depth uh, form of, of yoga and a, and a mental framework for yoga, probably before you do yoga, you can you need to read this book to understand what your what your mind should be uh, set for. Uh, so, tell us a little bit about your book. Um, you know why uh, you know all the things that you have put into it. Just describe it for the listeners, and uh, then if there are any other books that you suggest or have influenced your life. Okay. I know you've done a lot of work with Deepak Chopra as well. Uh, I have uh, been seeing your, uh, I have did looked up your work. So he's also on similar lines. So tell us a little bit about your book uh, to begin with and just describe it for us. And maybe you could just hold it for the camera. <laughs> uh, so this is the uh, Indian edition of One Simple Thing. A new look at the science of yoga and how it can transform your life. And uh, as you said, the introduction was written by my friend and colleague Deepak Chopra. Um, it was, came out in India in October, published by Penn Macmillan. And um, thank you for the compliments on the book, by the way. Uh, the reason I wrote the book... This cover is instantly much more attractive than the Kindle cover. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. a plain yellow. Plain yellow. <laughs> 
they did a very nice job on the cover. The, uh, what I had noticed was two different things. Number one, that you could have a bunch of different people with different complaints walk into a yoga class and all come out of it feeling better. So even if one person went in with some back pain, another person went in with some anxiety, another person went in looking for meaning in life because they're on a spiritual quest, another person just needed to stretch their body, someone else wanted to relax. And you have those five people, we all go to the same yoga class, we do the same poses, we come out, we all feel better. Like that thing we went in for was being addressed. And I wondered how is this possible? And because, as you know, you run a science company and you know about the pharmaceutical world, you can't just give the same medicine to every single person who has five different, you know, five different people with five different diseases and expect them to get better. You target the medicine you give them. Yoga didn't seem to need that. And then another thing that I noticed was that if you grabbed five or ten random people off the street and you say, do you do yoga? And they say yes. You say, how does it make you feel? They'll say, I feel less stressed and more relaxed. I um, have deeper connection to myself. I feel more grounded. Uh, my body feels better. I feel healthier. My digestion is better. My sleep is better. I'm more flexible. I'm stronger. And um, I feel an increased sense of, of knowing who I am. These will be the common things that everybody says. And then you say to them, what kind of yoga do they, you do? And one person will say, I do Ashtanga yoga, I do Iyengar yoga, I do Hot yoga, I do Kundalini yoga, I do Shivananda yoga, I do Integral yoga, I just chant mantras. Uh, all the different types of yogas, people will tell you that's what they do, yet they're all getting the same basic effect. So then I also started to question, how is it that no matter what kind of yoga you do, you end up feeling better with the same reported benefits. In fact, there was a study done, it was a meta-analysis by a doctor named Holger Kramer from Germany. And he did a meta-analysis on 307 different yoga studies, randomized control trials. And there were 52 different types of yoga in all of those trials. And these include things like Sudarshana Kriya, Shivananda, Ashtanga, like you name it, everything is in there. 277 of those RCTs were showing similar positive results, like the ones I just named you. So there was, the outcome of his study, his conclusion basically was, yoga works, it has the same positive outcomes no matter what kind of yoga you do, and the reason that people will do different types is only because of two reasons, mainly two reasons. One, personal preference, and number two, availability. So whatever kind of yoga is close to you, that's what you'll end up doing, even if, if it's just YouTube and the benefits you're gonna get are basically the same as everybody else. So I wanted to look at what are the underlying neurophysiological mechanisms that make yoga effective? What's happening underneath the hood that makes yoga work no matter what kind of yoga it is and no matter what it is you seem to be looking for in your life to improve yourself? And that's what the book is basically about. And what did you find in, 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 two, in two minutes, if you could tell us a little snapshot of what you found? A snapshot is what we talked about earlier, that the first four limbs of Patanjali's Ashtanga Yoga are geared towards um, toning the vagus nerve and balancing the information flows between the body and brain. That's number one. And that's going to affect and support homeostasis in the body as well, which is our body's innate ability to restore balance. If we support homeostasis by exercising, breathing deeply, sleeping at the right time, eating a proper diet, 
and um, you know, in getting along with people in sort of pro-social ways through monitoring our behavior, um, what happens is that our homeostatic functions are supported and if there's something wrong in the body, homeostasis knows how to repair it. But if homeostasis is not supported, then we continue to weaken our system. So all we need to do is support the mechanism in us that restores balance and we will come back into balance. So that's okay. one of the big findings. Awesome. So well, just a quick, quick question. How long do you think a person should do yoga? What should it be? What should his, uh, is it a one hour? Is it one and a half hour? What do you, or like, what do you think is the ideal time or an ideal, and how do you divide it between the, the, the asanas, the meditation and the pranayama? Okay. So in Ayurveda, they say it's not what you eat, but what you can digest. And the same is true with yoga. Uh, it doesn't matter how long you do it for, or what type you do, as long as you can digest the practices that you're doing. Digest? What do you mean by digest? Absorb. You can assimilate. So if someone does, uh, for one person, a 15-minute yoga practice, if their body is weak, it might be too much for them. Maybe they should only be doing 10 minutes. For someone who's a little bit more fit, who needs to challenge and push themselves, 15 minutes might not be enough. They might need to, might need to do 30 minutes. So a lot of it is person-dependent which is why a teacher is necessary. So you do enough every day. Here are the guidelines that you look for. Not how much that you do, but what are the outcomes and effects of the practice. We want to be building vitality, building energy through our practices. So it's good to do a little bit of movement every day. It's good to do at least a few minutes of some meditation or mindfulness practice so we can really self-evaluate and come in touch with our emotions and our mental states, that's very key. And then some pranayama can be simple breathing practices for maybe four, five, six minutes is enough. And as you, your system becomes stronger, up to 20 minutes is fine too. But you, you don't really need to put a time limit on it. What you should do is find someone who can guide you. There are a lot of yoga teachers in India, a lot of wonderful ones. And find someone who can guide you and then make sure that the practices are making you feel better. If they're making you feel weaker or throwing you off or you can't maintain them, then it's not the right practice or your discipline needs to be worked on. Um, so look for the outcomes of the practices, not for what you think the structure should be. Well, thank you, Eddie. And for those of you who's listening in, in your car, on the flight, in the kitchen, or at any point of the day or night. If you liked what you heard, I'd love you to do something. No, not a contribution or money. Just head on to iTunes, the podcast section, and give us a five-star rating. Also, if you have friends who you think would be helped with all this, do share this podcast with them. Uh, and do you have a comment? Write to me at tandurust at gmail.com. That's T-A-N-D-A-R-O-S-T at gmail.com. And I've got to thank Atharva Markom. That's A-T-H-A-R-V-A-M-A-R-C-O-M. Atharva Markom, uh, who was uh, India's, in my opinion, India's best public relations firm and who generously support our efforts uh, at the Health Tips Podcast. So keep listening in. Stay healthy. Stay fit. See you next time. Bye. Thank you.